Uh, let's do a cell phone check. Everybody turn the cell phones on. No, I'm just kidding. Just joking. Check your, check your emails. Imagine when they have a self-actuator uh, in all the feet, little, little inexpensive device that just, wherever it goes, it just automatically levels out the... Wouldn't that be an incredible invention? <laughs> Anybody have the technology ability to do that? Hmm? Wouldn't that be something, eh? Does anybody know of anybody else coming that we might want to wait for? Anybody else? Is it all good? Okay. Let's go for refuge and generate bodhicitta and have a, uh, a little silent meditation of uh, giving and um, taking. Namo, from now into the attainment of unsurpassed awakening, I enter sentient beings, equal space. Go for refuge, the Guru, source of all blessings. We go for refuge to deities, bestower of supreme city. We go for refuge to Dakinis, spell of, of all obstacles. We go for refuge to the Buddha, the first among humans. We go for refuge to sublime Dharma, peaceful and free from attachment. We go for refuge to Sangha, supreme field of accumulation. We go for refuge to Dharmapala's masters of activity. Namo, from now into the attainment of unsurpassed awakening, I under sentient beings equal space. Go for refuge to the Guru, source of all blessings. We go for refuge to the deities, bestower of supreme city. We go for refuge to Zakinis, the spell of all obstacles. We go for refuge to the Buddha, the first among humans. We go for refuge to sublime Dharma, peaceful and free from attachment. We go for refuge to Sangha, supreme field of accumulation. We go for refuge to Dharmapala's masters of activity. Namo. Daksha namke nampe sanche na nuri nizolame jangchubar jinla kunjulama lakapchi Grodov Soso Yidam Lakabchi, Porcho Kunzo Kandro Lakabchi, Kangne Sowa Sange Lakabchi, Shiva Chengro Damsho Lakabchi, Sokishin Shogendon Lakabchi, Trinle Nagdan Chokyo Lakabchi. And then generating relative and absolute bodhicitta enlightenment mind for all sentient beings. <clears throat> May all sentient beings from Sara be free from suffering, be joyful and truly abide in supreme happiness. We generate the supreme mind impartial towards all in order to attain the heart of awakening. In order that we may fully benefit the being's six realms, we must attain the stage of Buddhahood in this very lifetime. Therefore, I'll be very diligent this unsurpassed teaching, the path luminously clear Vajra essence. 
May all sentient beings from sorrow be free from suffering, be joyful and truly abide in supreme happiness. We generate the supreme mind impartial towards all in order to attain the heart of awakening. In order that they may fully benefit the being's six realms, I must attain the stage of Buddhahood in this very lifetime. Therefore, be very diligent in this unsurpassed teaching, the path luminously clear of Vajra essence. Gorwe Samche Dungda Dragna Shingdiwa Chogla Gampa Nilaga Kunla Tangyon Yampe Sanchudi Changshu Nimpo Topchu Dagiki Dagi Rodru Samshin Kondo Shir Sangi Gopang Sutu Topaja Nishu Osu Durjin Polam Lame Chodru Rabbe Sampargi. With those profound contemplations and aspirations, uh, let's take a few minutes to uh, breathe in the uh, suffering of all sentient beings, those we love and those we don't even know, those who are enemies and those who we uh, dislike, and breathing uh, all that black smoke into our heart center and letting it dissolve away into the empty nature that it is, resting in that, uh, and then from that uh, resting, uh, that knowledge, uh, breathing it out as white light, sparkling white light that liberates uh, sentient beings.
very good. Anybody have any questions you'd like to ask um, concerning this text or the uh, the nature of Dharma, the practice and study and conduct of Dharma uh, before we begin? Maybe something that has arisen from the past uh, classes. Yes? Um, I feel like I'm almost there, but I still can't get my head around emptiness. <laughs> Empty heads? I, I couldn't resist this. Sorry, it's just a setup, but empty heads, hard, hard, hard concept to, to grasp, if I may. I uh, couldn't, couldn't resist. Like every time some, something comes up that relates to it, oh, that's helpful, and then it's gone. And I, and I can't quite get it. Okay. Well, uh, that might be a benefit for everybody else in the room. I suspect so. Um, as I, when I was attending some an empowerment in in um, Dharamsala many years ago, maybe ten years ago, is that many? Maybe uh, the Dalai Lama was teaching before giving an empowerment, uh, and he made a profound statement, which I was I would have liked to have given a standing ovation, but it wasn't the right place. But I thought he was going to get shot. And, and he, he said uh, out loud, he was fantastic with the translation, he said, he paused and he said, you know, you can wear a robe, you can hold a rosary, you can have a Dharma name, you can have all that stuff, but unless you, don't, unless you understand emptiness, you're not a Buddhist. And I went, what a statement, what a bold statement, he's absolutely correct. But to say it that way, I thought, there's like 3,000 Tibetans all doing it with their rosary, and there's just a few Westerners, and you know, people wearing robes, and I thought, wow, is he being out there? Um, so this, this word emptiness, which points to experience, is, is the most essential thing, and the most misunderstood, of course. And it's not... It's not that it's just one definition, but it's so important to hear it again and again and again and again and again. So first of all, emptiness is a translation of the word shunyata. It's, an, it's a translation of a Sanskrit word. <coughs> and it really has to be understood because whenever we translate something, it can miss the entire meaning. It can only have part of the meaning. And the word emptiness disturbs a lot of people. I've had people mad at me in classes because they say, you know, we're a psychotherapist and emptiness is my problem with people. Why do you keep promoting it, teaching it? So the word emptiness as a translation of shunta actually is a good translation once you understand what it means. Number one, it means empty of afflictive states. If you write these down, maybe it will help for some of you, unless you have it memorized or really understand it. But number one is emptied out 
of all afflictive states, greed, hatred, delusion, pride, jealousy, emptied out. When it's emptied out, it's really beautiful. So emptiness is not empty, it's full of freedom. It's full of the joy and the bliss that comes with the freedom from afflictive emotions. So that, that translation, emptiness, is a really good translation. Okay, let me repeat that. Uh, free, emptied out of all afflictive states. When all the afflictive states drop away and empty out, like down the drain pipe, <laughs> or into a wormhole or something like that, black hole, then the transcendental, the, the clear light of the mind dawns. And the 37 factors of enlightenment are present for even an instant, just an instant, just like that. Okay. Empty of all grasping. You can't find any grasping. That's a distinctive hallmark. You'll, you'll, if you're finding grasping, grasping to an experience, it's not empty. Empty of even the idea of emptiness. That better be present, otherwise you've missed it. If you think emptiness is a thing, you've missed it. It's not a thing. It's emptied out of all thingness. Empty of any solidity. Empty of all obstructive experience. Empty of any confusion about experience. That's a really good word. It's a good translation. That's why the word uh, emptiness is used again and again and again, because it, it really works. But from a point of view of some schools of psychotherapy and psychology, psychologists, it's not a good word. It hits the wrong buttons. But once they understand it, they go, aha, okay, it makes sense. But if they don't understand it, it, it kind of hurts because going, I'm doing everything to bring people out of emptiness. <laughs> Why are you promoting emptiness? So when emptiness is experienced by awareness, that is awareness experiences primordial awareness, then great bliss dawns, not ordinary bliss, the bliss of freedom dawns. So, so I want to give you a kind of a metaphor, an analogy. Uh, maybe you've experienced this, but it reminds me of when you have a low temperature. No, maybe not. This is, this is a bit scientific. But when you create a high vacuum and you, you boil water, you bring water to some heat and you take the lid off and let it in, it just boils. Because you create a vacuum, that vacuum allows everything to come out. So really, the other thing about emptiness is it's full of space. It's full of light. So the word shunyata in Sanskrit, the first part of the word is shun, which is sun. It's full of sunlight. It's not empty. So emptiness is not empty. 
it's full of liberation. This is what must, the space creates the liberation. Yeah. Emptiness is aware. Emptiness, emptiness is awareness that experiences primordial awareness. Which is the same thing. It's like coming home to mum. It's like coming home, as they say, the child meets the mother light. It's always been there, it's just you don't recognize it. Always been there. It's like, <clears throat> I know this sounds kind of weird, but it's like, the, it's like the taste of vanilla in coffee is one of the hardest tastes to learn to pick up. It's very subtle. I remember the first time I was looking for vanilla and went, oh, there it is. It's always been there. It's, it's always been there. It just takes training and a palate to be able to detect gardenias in coffee or wine, you know. So, 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 so. I'm a little bit concerned here because being empty. No, no concerns and emptiness, believe me. Being, being empty of the five or three negative brings infinite possibilities. But infinite possibilities is full. Full of emptiness. Because, because it's emptied out of any solidity and constraints. All constraints get emptied out. So this is one of the, one of the highest meditations given uh, in, in the teaching of, of Buddhism, is the interdependent meditation of all phenomena. Once you start to study interdependence, you realize that everything arises and passes away relatively through an infinite number of causes and conditions, of which there's some main ones. But if you start to move around the cause and conditions, anything's possible. Anything's possible. And that possibility, that open possibility, endless possibility, is emptiness. Endless possibility, openness, openness, openness. Yes. Is that a gradual awakening or a gradual moving into emptiness, or does it, or will it vary? All, all liberation is gradual. The experiences usually happen suddenly. Therefore, many people say it's sudden, but there is no such thing. You have to have the cause and conditions for experiences to happen. It's just sometimes you don't remember that it took you years to come to that experience. And because it, it dawns on you, you go, wow, where'd that come from? Well, it comes from, you know, it's like, it's like hitting a really perfect note in music. And you go, where'd that come from? Well, it comes from training. Occasionally, you think you get lucky. But there's still causes and conditions. The question is, if you don't train, you'll never do it again for 20 years. The purpose of dharmas, as my teacher said, my first meditation interview at the age of 17 or something, can you do that again anytime? I said, no. He says, well, you got lots of work to do. It's like, it's like saying, well, I, I played a beautiful note on, on the cello. So what? Can you do it again? Show me. But uh, maybe next week. That, that's, that's the difference. 
We want it to become the natural condition, not through training, but through discovery. So that's the difference. It's really important to understand. We don't create Buddhahood. We don't create essence of mind. We don't create emptiness. It's already present. You discover it, and then you open it up. That's all. You don't make, really you don't make notes on an instrument. You discover the potential of the notes in an instrument. You discover the potential of music. You don't discover mathematics, you don't, you don't create mathematics. <clears throat> you discover mathematics, excuse me. <clears throat> you discover mathematical principles and then you open them up. It's a different attitude. You actually don't practice meditation, you find meditation. I, I know you practice, but really eventually you'll see you discover meditation through practicing it, then when it's natural, it, it, then you really are meditating. But you have to train to find the natural notes. Is that making sense? This is my experience, but it's also very classic from the point of view of Mahamudra Zogchen. But it's not normally taught that way. But it's always been my experience. As the genuine way. I can't see it any other way, actually. And actually, for most things, it's like that. Okay, Nathan? My concern, really, Nathan, no, I have a concern, is whether you have a license for those socks. That's, that's my concern. So, so emptiness or no emptiness, I, I want to know if you have a license for that. Yes? Could you, could you say that emptiness is sort of similar to what the unified field is? Uh, no, it's, that's a very popular um, idea today, but I wouldn't. And, and the reason um, being is the unified field theory, or, or a, uh, the potential of a unified field theory, is a concept. And it's, it's based on causes and conditions. I would say that emptiness is what underlines the mind that can conceive of a unified field theory. The, the, the openness and the intelligence that can actually look for a unified field theory in, in form and energy. What's behind that is emptiness, but not the unified field theory. And even once a unified field theory will be, is found, we're going to be finding more. That's the history of science, is more. We have to look for, uh, as many physicists are beginning to dawn on them, they're now beginning to consider how does awareness and consciousness now create the physics that we study? And there's, that's a hot field. That's a really hot field. How does consciousness create a math and a physics that seems to work, and yet it's not working? That's the, that's the funny thing. It's really got problems. Modern physics has some not to put it down, I love physics, I study it all the time. It has some serious problems. It's not, it's not, it's working really well. We can put a, we can put a satellite on a billion, on a, on a small body that's no bigger than this room, a billion kilometers away. That's, that's, that's fantastic physics, understanding of physics. But we don't know why that, is. we don't know what gravity is, and we don't know how, we don't know what uh, most the matter is in the universe, 
and we don't know what the energy is in the universe. It's all hidden. We don't have the mathematics. We don't have the theories. Some big problems. But it's very cool. That's wonderful. So the intelligence that wants to know the wakefulness, the brilliance and openness and the wakefulness and the compassion that wants to know is the emptiness. And that's the emptiness. Any others? You got it? I'm working on it. Excellent. Okay. Let's go to the let's go to the text. Number twenty-three. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to let go of grasping. There you got there you got it. That is actually the definitive path. As a pith instruction in Mahamudra says, um, release all grasping and the essence of mind at once appears. There you got it. So you could actually literally, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating, it's a very high practice. It's fantastic, but once you have the tranquility, once you're well trained in tranquility and your energies are excellent and your mind can remain uh, naturally focused for long periods of time, then you can simply do the practice which is elegant of, of letting go of every, unwinding every bit of clinging. You just literally let it self-liberate, self-liberate, self-liberate. That's the direct way, very direct way. You have to find that. And you also have to have an experience of self-liberating experience to do that. So it has to dawn on you. Okay. When encountering things, phenomena, experience, one finds pleasant or attractive, consider, considering them to be like rainbows in the summer skies, beautiful in appearance, yet in truth devoid of any substance. This is actually the experience of experience, the, the insight, the penetrative insight into how all experience is, it's a lot like a rainbow. It, it, so, so you're going to say, well, that can't be. So let me give you an example. This is so easy to prove. You ready for the proof? Let's do a lab experiment. Let's put your hand on the floor. Put your hand on the floor and feel the floor. Just kind of put it on. So that, that floor feels pretty solid, doesn't it? Feels solid? Okay. And you'd call it a floor. Okay. So tell me what the experience actually is. The experience, not the concept, the experience. Where is the floor? It's in your mind. Now experience the floor in your mind, not the concept of a solid floor that you were taught by your parents or in school. What's that really like? The experience. Not the concept that you're taught. What's the experience like? Look at it. Does that sound solid? or open. Now take a look at the concept of floor in your mind. Is it any different? Not a shred of difference. It feels solid. 
but it feels solid, that's because the concept is solid, but it's not actually solid. Does that go with the sensations we were talking about? Yesterday? Everything. So when I touched, when I leaned against what I thought was a wall, because it looks like a wall, to put my shoes on yesterday, and it went like this, it was so beautiful to experience the dropping away of concept of wall into tent. You see, they're both walls, but they have different properties. They're both, they're just concepts. So one actually has to practice this over and over and over again until the insight, the Vipassana, the penetration, dawns as a global experience, not as a one-off. Just have to do it over and over and over again. By, what, by being absolutely crystal clear in your mind and experiencing the coming and goings in the mind until one experiences the things of the mind as mind. This is it. This is called penetrative insight, liberation. And it dawns. It doesn't mean you can't feel and have good experiences and love and everything else. They just have a different quality. They have rainbow-like quality. And bliss. Every experience is actually blissful, even, even pain. But, but it doesn't mean you can't sh tie your shoelaces. Now, if you can't tie your shoelaces, you've missed the point. And if you can't make scrambled eggs well, you've missed the point. And if you can't put on rainbow socks, you've missed the point. You have to be able to do both, but actually you're putting on rainbows. <laughs> He's walking on rainbows. So this, this number 23 and number 22 are direct instructions of the practice of penetrative insight of Mahamudra. Not so much Dzogchen, because when we practice Dzogchen, we're actually, we're actually meditating on Buddha nature, going right for Buddha nature. But these are actually practices of what's called penetrative insight which means you have the training of a very calm mind and now you can look for what actually is experience and break through. This is, this is direct instruction teaching of penetrative apasana. So does it mean that something isn't solid? No, it's just not really solid. That's what's important. There is scrambled eggs that you can eat, and they can be delicious. But when you really look, you can't even find the scrambled egg. You can find taste. And when you look at taste, you experience a phenomena of the mind that creates the taste. Have you ever tasted something you've never tasted before, and you're going, what is that? And then eventually you have a memory and a concept about it. And every time you taste it, you go, pancake, French toast. You label it within a half, within a quarter of a second, and you got it. Now it's frozen. But before that, there actually isn't a scrambled eggs and there isn't French toast. Do you know what I mean that? It's just experience. And then we solidify it, make it rigid in less than a second. Isn't that cool? So what is the experience 
of emptiness, open and residing in infinite possibility without conceptual contrivance and letting it unbind. If you can do that long enough, eventually the mind experiences mind in its empty nature. Then you have to train in bringing back both together, relative and absolute, simultaneously. You can eat the scrambled eggs and it is experienced as emptiness, but it's still darn good scrambled eggs. And you can put truffle salt on it, yeah? And enjoy the truffle salt, but actually it has no uh, basis. Both. Okay. Yes. It's about the naming practice modeling. Um, you do the naming practice without having a, a concept. Like if we French toast every morning, and uh, I'm eating French toast. You eat French toast every morning? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had French toast this morning. If you, leave the, if you leave the French toast too long, it becomes very solidified. But if you put maple syrup on it and yogurt, it keeps it moist. That's the, that's the answer. In a more serious note, labeling is a device. If you don't know what labeling is, labeling is a very good device to discover labeling as a technique. By saying names with conscious aware understanding it's very useful as a training tool so it's really helpful to go around the room and name people and experience the naming and then you come to non-solidity of concept okay then that's the training and that's done in Burmese Vipassana so the great teacher of Burmese Vipassana Mahasi Sayadaw not so much Lady Sayadaw, but Mahasi Sayadaw, who died um, in the 70s. And Namjoon Rinpoche studied with a Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma. And his method used a lot of naming. So you name sensations. So when you're hearing, you don't say, you don't say child screaming. You say sound. So you, 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 you take the concept away by naming the sensation, not the sound. And that was a major way that he found he broke through and then taught that system, which is you name everything for a while. And it gets really obnoxious. Yeah, so, so for instance, you don't, you don't say, I'm walking in the woods, you say, walking. You don't say, uh, touching the, the glass to drink water, you say, just touching. You take away the conceptual field for the pure sensation. So this technique is really powerful. It's the heart of most modern Abhidhamma systems, just because it's very popular. Yeah, and it's actually very good. It gets obnoxious because the, everything you do now is, is labeled. Touch, looking, not seeing the watch, looking, smelling, hearing, looking, hearing, looking, hearing, you take out all the conceptual flavor until the senses collapse into emptiness. 
because you're looking so closely. That can take days and days and days and days and days, and eventually it opens and you see the space that there's no con the, the concept isn't real. Uh, so that method is used in some uh, traditions. Others don't do that. Uh, in the Mahamudra tradition, Dzogchen tradition, we just look at the nature of mind. It's harder because you actually have to have very good body sensation. You have to have very clear mind to do that. Whereas in the tradition of Burmese Vipassana, uh, they tried to get around that because the training isn't there. So, so he figured, I can get around this by getting people to look at their sensation, their physical sensation, over and over and over again. Without training in calm, without training in lucid mind, which, which was historically the way of doing it. Okay, did you have a... Well, I was just wondering uh, if you could explain to me what, what do you think that happened to me, um, to my mind? Around 30 years ago, I was on magic mushrooms, and uh, I went behind, I went, I, I leaned back on a wall, and I basically could trans, trans, Transcend, no, go through it, through the wall. Go yeah. through mm -hmm. the wall. Mm -hmm. I cannot forget that feeling. That like really seeing the molecules of the wall and go, me going going through that wall. And um, it was emptiness. What could my mind be like? I know it was some magic mushrooms, but uh, this is not uncommon with meditative experience either. The magic mushrooms uh, simply uh, simply. Uh, alter brain chemistry as we do in meditation, except that we systematically do it in meditation, whereas magic mushroom, you have no idea how it's going to affect the person at any given time, depending on all kinds of history and everything else. You, you could also end up in a paranoid situation. Uh, you could literally um, end up all kinds of things. But it's not uncommon in meditation to, to literally be launched into the sky or fall through the earth these are very common um, to, to feel that you could walk through a wall even though you can't, but you know you could somehow until you can because many yogi, yogins have been witnessed to and have done. And all kinds of experience like that where, where everything gets transparent. So there comes a point where actually you have enough experiences that there is a floor but there's no feeling of a solid floor. There's walls, but there's no solid walls. And if you do a dark retreat, as many people have, real train in dark retreat, you often have the experience you can see right through the walls. You can see who's coming to the cabin. You can, you can, you can hear voices from kilometers away. So all these things are really common, but they open up uh, systematically without drugs. Whereas in drugs, you really don't know what's going to happen next because the brain chemistry is being altered. Whereas if you teach meditation for years and years and years, you can almost predict exactly what's going to happen next to somebody because it's developmental, pretty much. You get surprised occasionally, but pretty much you can know that tomorrow or the next week there's going to be the following experience because it's the, the nervous system's organized in a certain way and we're very similar that way. So this is why, this is personally, not just personally, but most, I think most Buddhist teachers um, would say, sure, try a drug a couple times, 
but, but that might give you the experience of, of a kind of openness you've never had before or cosmic love you've never had before. But after that, be careful because you're actually karmically altering your brain. So people who've taken a lot of drugs, bless their hearts, often have different kinds of meditative experiences that are drug-like. And, and this becomes a difficulty. I, it's, hard, it's, it's hard work for me. I'm a lazy teacher, so I, I don't want to deal with that. Uh, but, but now the drug, the pathways the drugs opened up is now redoing those pathways over and over again. It's, it's no longer systematic. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's challenging. Because I'd, I'd rather have natural mind as opposed to dr drug-altered mind. But, but that, that experience actually is, is many, many, many meditators have reported those kinds of experiences. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing is, did, did you have a witness and a photograph? You see? Uh, uh, so the experience is profound because it feels very real. But it begins to open you up, your cognition up, in ways that were frozen. That's why those experiences are really important. Yeah? Important. It's important to have those experiences because they, they unbind the fixity of the mind. Yeah? That's, not, that's beyond intellectual. In other words, you can have a physicist or a scientist describing the space of molecules and the openness of the universe and everything like that, but emotionally they don't function necessarily like that. They'll still fight with their colleagues and you know, do all kinds of things emotionally that do not agree with the intellectual flavor. Do you see that? Whereas the purpose of Dharma is to bring the two together so that your emotional life, your physical life, your communication life, how you conduct your life actually is based on the experience, naturally. Very, very, thank you for that. Very important point. So shall we continue uh, text? Next one, 24, the practice of all the bodhisattvas is to recognize delusion. Whenever one is confronted by adversity or misfortune, for these sufferings are just like the death of a child in a dream. And it's so exhausting to cling to delusory perceptions as real. Well, there's another great meditation. It's called the, uh, the daytime and the sleep time dream yoga. Uh, very important practice of the, what's called completion stage, where we use our dreams to realize the dreamlike nature of the daily life. So for instance, if you've ever had a shark, uh, a great white shark attack you in a dream and chop off and eat off your leg, you wait, it's pretty scary, isn't it? And you wake up going, that was a dream. But if you can do that in the dream and not have the fear and enjoy the bliss of having your body eaten. That's very important, classic. The wolves get you. The bear eats you up and you realize it's just bliss, space, rainbow light being spread all over the place. This is actually what's happening. Now, of course, you wouldn't want a shark to eat you in daily life, yes? Or bite your leg off. But when we have emotional biting of our leg off, do you know what I mean by that? Or someone bites our head off, 
or adversity happens that doesn't actually eat your leg. You getting the idea? We react as if our leg has been eaten or our head's been chopped off. Through this practice, we begin to realize that no head gets bitten off, no mind gets harmed, and nothing's actually happened except for views being altered. That's all. So we have to slow everything down. That's why we meditate a lot. We slow everything down, not, not dull, clear. So that when our head gets bitten off, we go, wow, that's really cool. So it's called food for meditation. We have to recognize delusion of, of, of ourselves and others that in fact what we're reacting to is we're reacting to a dream. So when the bomba goes off and we wreck like that, we're reacting to a dream. We don't have to react to that. It's not bad that we react to that way. Maybe that's a good thing. It might be a good thing to get out of the way. Or someone honks their horn in a car and we go, we jump out of the way. That's not a bad thing. But it's actually what's behind it is what tells you about the delusion. So everything's about mental intent, purifying mental intent. So here, here's a good example. The helicopter. Let's take this as a dream right now, which it is. Did the helicopter disturb you in any way? Some people would say yes. What did it, what did it disturb? Your calm. Why are you clinging to calm when the universe isn't calm? Why do you have to be that way? So we go back up to number 23. The practice of all bodhisattvas is to let go of grasping. Grasping to what? I want to be calm. Grasping. I want to be anxious. Grasping. I want to be in a state of loving kindness. Grasping. Liberation is no state in particular. Grasping after no state. Let the natural mind on. The natural mind on. But first of all, we have to practice in good states. So therefore, we should go to retreat center that doesn't have too many helicopters flying overhead. Do you see? Out of compassion? Out <coughs> of compassion, go to some place where there's not helicopters every 10 minutes. Why? Because one, does, one is not established in tranquility deep enough to now see the mind that does not get disturbed. It be, it's too conceptual. So, this is why all the texts say, go to a remote place and be in a solitary place and don't talk to give yourself a chance to really experience natural tranquility. From that insight of natural tranquility, then you can go and meditate in very busy, difficult places. Most of my, a lot of my, not most, but a lot of my retreats were done on Polish Ocean Lines freighters. Polish Ocean Lines freighter service, non-container ship, general cargo, 10 rooms, 12 rooms, full-on three-month retreats, in port, out of port, Busy, noisy, difficult, and that's where we did a lot of our retreats. 
but I've also done a lot of retreats on hilltops where there's only a few helicopters. Well, I had one which was a helicopter every, right over, right over, 50 feet above, <laughs> in a remote area. They just liked the cabin. They just liked it, because it's a good marker for going down the river, taking the tourists. So, so this is now good food for Dharma, good food for Dharma. Is that so? First of all, one whatever your practice is that you do with your teacher, you have to find great tranquility, and see the mind is naturally tranquil, naturally open. From that discovery, you can take that and bring the busyness of the universe in and see that nothing's actually disturbed. But don't do that. Don't practice disturb practice, usually from the beginning, unless you're practicing with your teacher and you, your teacher's residing in a place that doesn't move, then you can discover that quality fast. That's the very old way. Yeah. One of the greatest teachers of Tibet, Longchenpa, his teacher moved them every two weeks. Every two weeks they had to move camp and disturb their practice every two weeks. He was a really hard teacher. And Longchenpa could never sit up in his caves. He always had to be bent over. They, his students, the teacher's students, always gave Longchenpa the worst accommodation and the worst food. He was also the most senior lineage holder. But they, they didn't like the bit jealousy, you see. So he was always kind of meditating, cramped over like this. Of course, he became one of the greatest teachers uh, and, and liberated beings of Tibet. So. Anyways, these are all good, all good questions. So recognizing delusion. Not just rec so here's a very important point. The word recognize is actually the word mindfulness. Because the major meaning of the word mindfulness is not bare attention. That's that's 1952 book that came out, and now we've been repeating it ever since. The main meaning of mindfulness is recollection and recognition of what the state is. So we don't want to put a lot of words around delusion like, oh, I feel terrible. Oh, I'm dumb. Oh, I didn't understand that. We don't care. That's not important. What's important is the experience of misdiagnosis, a belief system that doesn't actually work, an idea. So more important is falling into the bamboozlement of a concept, that is the recognition of delusion. Do you see the difference? Because we're, we're, we're normally used to making a story around something, a concept. Here we don't want to make the concept of delusion. We want to identify delusion as a, as a, as a form of experience. I'm making a story. I'm making a concept. That's a delusion. And any concept. So even to call somebody by their name and say, Sandra, is both a correct name, but actually believing it is in a correct thing is delusion. Are you following? The recognition of the concept making is the recognition of delusion. 
but not with a bad feeling around it. That's important. Not with, oh, I'm doing something bad. No, concept making is, listen to the language. I'm going to change it a bit. Concept making is inherently delusional, but not bad. The Buddha said, I too use concept, but I'm not fooled thereby. Concepts can be the most compassionate thing in the world if used right. Making sense? But if you don't know it's a concept, you're bewildered. Like the winds blowing through and getting upset. So this, uh, this last point here on 24, it's so exhausting to cling to delusory perceptions as real. Um, be, be, uh, watch your, um, your exhaustion because clinging takes a lot of energy. Okay? Now, when you're sick, metabolically sick, it takes a lot of energy. That's different. Even that could be the same. So you can be sick and have no energy, but your mind is full of energy and full of love. See? But a lot of tiredness can come about through all day clinging to dreams that you really can't cling to. So here's a question for you. I want you to write, maybe write this down and you can practice this. Instead of saying, it's all suffering because of clinging, why don't you look to see if the mind can cling? <laughs> exactly. So you want a really fast practice? Go see if anything's actually clinging or whether clinging is a concept. In other words, if you've been told that there's clinging, you've now made clinging into a solidity. But maybe clinging actually doesn't truly exist. What clings? So here's a good question. It's a very deep Buddhist philosophical point. What's doing the clinging? Then you say self is doing the clinging. But then you look at self, and can you find a real self? Then you can't find anything doing clinging. What happens? Liberation. Liberation. Freedom. Just like just being in space. Beautiful open space with no clinging. So again, there's another meditation for you. And then you'll see the exhaustion. Even if you're utterly tired, you had no sleep that night, which some of us don't always sleep that well, you find that your mind is bright even though your eyes are closed. And that's another great meditation practice. Contrary to all the books you're going to read, try this. Utterly sleepy in meditation, what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to brighten yourself up, yes? Well, why don't you go the other way? Use it like Dharma food and fall asleep with awareness. Just actually use it and see what's falling asleep. You may find out your mind can't fall asleep, 
but your faculties can't, which is exactly what happens every night. We fall asleep, but awareness doesn't fall asleep. So now you've got a very high practice, which is to fall asleep while you're sitting up with awareness. Or if you have narcolepsy or you're, you have sleep apnea and you just, you're sitting in a Dharma class and you're going, I'm really interested, but, oh. Then you use that and you experience, you, you, you look and, and stay with the awareness and don't get fooled by the sensation. You'll see that your mind never falls asleep. Your faculties fall asleep like in a faculty meeting. Many, peop- many faculty members fall asleep in faculty meetings. I've noticed that. But, no, but the awareness is staying very bright. <laughs> it's a joke. Okay. Let's uh, move on to the next one. Number 25. The practice of all the bodhisattvas is to give out of generosity. So now we're going to go through six paramitas with no hopes of karmic recompense or expectations of reward. For if, for if those who seek awakening must give even their own bodies, what need is there to mention mere outer objects and possessions? Uh, so I'm going to um, give commentary on this and then we're going to take a 10 minute break. In the teaching of the six paramis, which are absolutely essential, and the path of the bodhisattva, The first paramita, the first perfection, is generosity. Generosity is the greatest practice for cutting through clinging. Clinging is the source of all suffering. Well, we can say in Mahamudra it's it's delusion about the nature of mind. But if we back it up into most teaching, then uh, it it is grasping and clinging. Generosity is the fastest cure for clinging. Give it up and you'll see you didn't need it. It's fantastic. Give, and you find this beautiful quality of mind that is neither giving nor receiving, but is naturally open to yourself and others. This is fantastic practice. So generosity is like the king or the queen of of all practices. With no hoping for recompense, with no hoping for payment. This is the art. I'm going to make you scrambled eggs, but you're not going, they better like it, I better get praised, and so forth and so forth. You just give it. And no expectation of reward for what you give. So when it says give with your own body, it doesn't mean you go into um, uh, prostitution or you um, do weird things. It, it, it means that you give with your body, you, you engage your body in generosity, not just mental. Watch, want to see a mental one? I can do this. I'm going to give every single person in Antigua a helicopter. Boy, am I generous. I'm going to actually feed everybody a beautiful uh, meal in all of Guatemala. And there will be no droughts ever again in Guatemala. I can just visualize it and feel it. Nice, eh? Not bad. 
but to engage your body in it. So to engage your body, your speech, and your mind is a much deeper practice than just mentally going. I've given everybody in Guatemala a beautiful meal for today. This is high practice. It's okay, but it's not so high. Much better would be to actually do it. So I like this, this uh, gentleman in the United States who is a graduate of Moorhouse University who recently, during convocation, said, I'm relieving all you graduates of all your student debt. They were like, what? He's serious, too. He's going to do it. I go, wow. Tens of millions of dollars. He didn't even know what the... Nobody knew what the amount was. He just said, I'm doing it, and I'm paying for it. And then the, the chancellor is busy trying to calculate what it is and going, I, I don't know what it is. He didn't care. He's doing it, not just thinking about it. This is, this is important. So not only did he have speech, does he have mind, but he's physically engaging in it. So uh, this, this kind of generosity uh, is, is really good. So therefore, if, for if those who seek awakening must give even their own bodies, what need is there to mention mere outer objects and possessions? So giving away possessions is a really good start of the practice. So we have a practice in the Tantras called giving away six things every day. And I've done this practice, I've given this out, and actually some people who've done this, it's changed their life completely. It, it, it opened up so much for their life by, by physically giving, not just mentally, physically giving six things away. I, they said to me, what should I do? Give six things away, mentally, uh, physically, uh, without wish for reward, without wish, oh, I love you, you're sweet, thank you very much, and just get used to giving things away, physically. Then mentally, then speech-wise. But don't just do speech and don't just do it mentally. Practice physical. It, it, it goes deeper. And, and then, and then uh, I'll learn to do that all day long. So I'll leave that there. We'll take a 10-minute break. And um, very high practice. Very high practice. Give me your socks. <laughs> practice. <laughs> You see, a very good Dharma teacher would say, now give me, give me all your rainbow socks. No, no, I won't. There's no way. Come on, give up all your rainbow socks. No, 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 it's the most precious thing of my life. 